This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Tamahome. Hi, I'm Jenny. Hi, I'm Seth. And we're going to talk new releases, recent arrivals. Uh, before we get into our major list, I want to talk about this book that came a couple days ago. It's called Unwrapped This, oh no, just Unwrapped Sky by Rick Davidson or Jurick Davidson, J R G R I K. I don't know. Um, it's got a, a minotaur sort of looking creature on the cover and a lady with a knife. So I'm guessing fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> and have have you guys heard about yet. this book? It's definitely no. fantasy. No? Nope. Okay. Uh, there's a quote here uh, from Library Journal saying it's got a starred review. Echoes the imaginative scope of some of the best authors, uh, such as Jeff Vandermeer. Uh, Davidson, <laughs> wait, there's only one. A best author, Jeff Vandermeer. <laughs> Davidson <laughs> is an award-winning writer with a huge amount of talent, excellent at description and compelling characters. Every aspect of his world building is exciting. And um, I tweeted the cover, which has got a nice uh, look to it. Very sort of greeny, nicely painted cover. And inside there's a map, which I always like. At least at least there's a map. There's no interior illustration, but there's a nice map with some minotaurs and other sort of... I guess it's going to be... Uh, what's What's the... Myth that this would be Theseus, Theseus and the Minotaur. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it's called? Uh, yeah. Uh, Theseus was the one who went into the labyrinth with the ball of string. Um, and there was like a black ship or sail something, or is it white sails? I can't remember. I think the, they come back with black sails because everybody's dead. Yeah. And this, they come back with black sails, and the mom like jumps off the cliff because her son's dead, but actually he's still alive because he couldn't get a different sail or something like that. The Greeks are cheery folks, yeah. Yeah, all cheery folks. Well, oh, um, what is Tor slash Forge? It says news from Tor Forge. Oh, Tor is the company, the, the, right. the book publisher, and Forge is an imprint. Uh, but I think this is just Tor. Uh, I think Forge might be the science fiction one now, and a tour is their fantasy. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. Jenny, did you say you had ebooks? Yeah, I have a few from Rebellion Publishing in the UK. Okay. I'll just go down those really quickly. Uh, one of them is Reach for Infinity. It's the second short story anthology from Jonathan Strahan. Is that how we say it? I think so. Yeah, I've already um, I've been starting his best science fiction and fantasy of the year, volume eight, and this is another anthology from him. And it includes mostly, I guess it looks like it's all science fiction, including Alistair Reynolds, Greg Egan, Ian McDonald, Ken McLeod, Pat Cadigan, Hanu Rajaniemi, Kathleen Angunin, Elliot de Bodard, Peter Watts, and more. Wow, good. Uh, it's a good really list. Really good lineup. Hmm. Why is it coming out of the UK? Like, does it make any difference whether it's a book? Well, at least for the review copies, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's kind of strange. They're just the people that email me. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and this is his new. He used to work with a different publisher, and this is kind of his new new publisher this year because the rest of the 
best science fiction and fantasy were published elsewhere. So volume eight is the first one to come from rebellion. Mm. Um, also on that list is the Raven's banquet, um, which is a prequel to Clifford Beale's novel Gideon's angel um, set during the 30 years war in Europe Historical fantasy filled with swashbuckling action, death, murder, mayhem, grand battles, and dark demonic secrets. <laughs> hmm. Seth, when was the Thirty Years' War? That would be uh, sixteen eighteen to sixteen forty eight. Um, reason I know that is because I recently reviewed uh, that David Weber and Eric Flint alternate history where a, a town in West Virginia gets time oh, traveled back. Thirty four series. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, which is also set in the. Uh, 30 Years War, most famous figure out of that was Gustavus Adolphus, the uh, Swedish military general. Yeah, he got blew, blown up. <laughs> I know that because there's a short story by uh, uh, what's a Canadian humorist? Um, uh, it's called The New Food. Stephen Leacock. The mm. story's called The New Food. And, and there's this, it's a story about a baby, well, a family that's trying out this new food, which is they're all gathered around the, the kitchen table oh boy. Um, to eat a well, our dinner table to eat a pill. <laughs> okay. Pill, because in the, in the future, everybody's going to just take a pill. And so what you do is normally you put the pill in the soup, in, in water, and it makes soup, and it has all the flavors of a, of a great meal. Right? Oh, okay. But uh, just as uh, the, the covering, which is a thimble over the, the food is uncovered, the baby snatches it up and swallows it. <laughs> oh, yes. And then he goes the way of Gustavus Adolphus. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man, oh, man. Spot. But it's a humorous story, so it's oh, great. Fun. All right. But I had to look up who Gustavus Adolphus was. So what are they fighting about in the 30s, 30 years war? Uh, religion, uh, religion and religious... Toleration was how it started, and then it became um, sort of a, a battle between the Habsburgs and, and everyone else, especially uh, France, who wasn't happy with the Habsburgs for quite a while because they were uh, the Habsburgs surrounded France because they had control of Spain and also you know, Germany, what's now Germany. So, so they're fighting over religious toleration. Got it. Partly, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a it's a big mess. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it. I'm sorry, Jenny. I, oh, no. Uh, history scholar, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and then they made Legos about it. Oh, did they? <laughs> just kidding. I, just I gotta get that set. <laughs> sorry, Jenny. Well, it's good that we're talking about history because the third book from Rebellion Publishing is also a brand new alternative history series that asks, what would have happened if Richard of York hadn't fallen at Bosworth Field in 1485? This means nothing to me. Um, a horse, but, <laughs> a horse. I them for a horse. But uh, it sees an unconquered line of Plantagenet kings replacing the familiar Tudor monarchs in an England filled with magic and danger. And the book name is Heirs, Heirs, sorry. <laughs> Heirs of the Demon King Uprising by Sarah Cockwell. <laughs> Not wow. That sounds cool. I, I wouldn't mind reading that. Yeah. And they're do trying to connect e-books? it with, like, Tudors or Game of Thrones. Yeah, 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 and e-books. Oh, well, maybe that's... Uh, can Can he review it, Jen? Oh, yeah, no one signed up for that one yet. Well, Brian signed I'll up for the first one, but... All right. Cool. So, Seth, you're 
Weber review isn't up yet? Uh, it is up. I did it. It was a couple weeks ago. Oh, okay. It was a fun book. Um, it was... The good thing about those books is, although it was a sequel in the series, they're trying to do all of them as as able to stand alone. So even though I hadn't read any of the other ones, I didn't feel completely lost. Oh, good. Yeah, it seems like we're seeing a lot more alternative history coming out by publishers that do science fiction rather than, you know, from the thriller angle mm-hmm. where it used to kind of belong. So it's kind of exciting. Uh, so we're heading into actual audiobooks now, right? Yes, we are. Cool. Uh, Hollow World, is that our first one? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's science fiction slash time travel? Yeah, you know me and my categories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Slightly different categories this time around. Uh, Michael J. Sullivan's Hollow World, narrated by Jonathan Davis mm-hmm. from Recorded Books. Jonathan Davis, great narrator. We had him on the podcast. Yeah, he's awesome. Ellis, yeah, he's really great. Ellis Rogers is an ordinary man who is about to embark on an extraordinary journey. All his life he has played it safe and done the right thing. But when he is faced with a terminal illness, Ellis is willing to take an insane gamble. He's built a time machine in his garage, and if it works, he'll face a world that challenges his understanding of what it means to be human, what it takes to love, and the cost of paradise. Ellis could find more than a cure for his disease. He might find what everyone has been searching for since time has begun, but only if he can survive the hollow world. It's interesting. Um, I wonder what the hollow world is. I do, too. It doesn't make you think of time travel, does it? No. Hmm. This is new for Sullivan because he wrote he his claim to fame was the Ryeria Chronicles, which is kind of a um, fantasy slash heist epic hmm. fantasy world series. I've read a couple of the books in that, and they're they're well written. I enjoyed them. Someone hmm. on the Strange Horizons though gave them an awful review. I can't remember who it was. A uh, name I recognized, but anyway, I enjoyed it. Hmm. Yeah, those were independently published, right? Initially, yeah, he's one of the uh, self published. Wonderkins of fantasy. Well, um, just so we're not uh, totally stereotyping here, I think someone else should read the next one. <laughs> I think I'll take this one on. All right. Uh, the Man Whose Teeth Were All Exactly Alike by Philip K. Dick, read by Phil... Giganti. Giganti. All right, from Brilliance Audio. And it says, Not everything is as it seems. For example, are the Neanderthal bones that Leo Runcible just it should Runcible? <laughs> oh, looks like a typo, huh? Leo Runcible just found the key to a new business venture, or something more sinister. That's the entire description. Do you know this story? This I, 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 I'm aware of it, but I, I've not read it. I, I have a feeling it's not science fiction, um, even though it says you know it's got something about Neanderthal bones. Um, I think it, I have a feeling it's a mainstream book that's just weird. Yeah. Um, but I do know something about Runcible. You guys know that word, Runcible? No. Runcible Spoon. Yes, the Runcible Spoon. <laughs> it's from, like, Alice in Wonderland? No. Is it? Is that, like <laughs> an, is that like an egg spoon? It's like the Vorpal Blade. You know, it's like a, it's a, it's a non-existent item that people are always trying to make real. Neat. Yeah. Um, his vorpal blade, that's from the Jabberwock, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Runcible Spoon, I'm, I'm thinking, where is that? It's from a poem. Let's see. What, Jenny's got it? 
No, that's the cover from Tam. Okay. <laughs> the Runcible Spoon, or other device, is from a nonsense word invented by Edward Lear. And the word appears several times in his works, most famously as the Runcible Spoon, used by the Owl and the Pussycat. The word Runcible apparently was one of Lear's favorite inventions, appearing in several of his works in reference to a number of different objects. Um, and the thing is, is these nonsense words, they really do, they seem like they're, they should describe something. Um, and I, I remember when I was a kid, my father was always talking about runcible spoons and I'm not like, I'm looking in the drawer and there's, it's just, there's spoons. I don't know what he's talking about. Son, go get me the runcible spoon. I'd probably Here's, grab the uh, great okay. spoon, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, the thing is, is people name things now Runcible Spoons, right? Because because they're trying to, it's like sort of playing fantasy in the real world. Um, here's, the, here's a quote from The Owl and the Pussycat. They dined on mints and splices of quince, which they ate with a Runcible Spoon. Works for them either. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, so... Uh, Philip K. Dick was always doing that with his character names. He was always reusing them and mixing them around. So Isidore. Oh, uh, yeah, from uh, Blade Runner. Right. He named one of his daughters Isidore. And that's from, uh, oh, sorry, not Isidore. Isold. He named one of his daughters Isold. Isidore is a play on that, sort of the female and the male. Um, from Tristan and Isold. Mm -hmm. Um, and so those you know, Leon from um, from Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is named after a friend of his. Uh, and he's he was always mixing matching names like that. Neat. Rick. A, a lot of his protagonists are named Rick. Um, and, you know, it's it's basically just Dick, right? Sure. Or um, uh, the best one is Horse Lover Fat from Vallis. Mm -hmm. Which sure. is a, um, a Greek and German uh, pun on his name. Right. Philip is means horse lover. Yeah, and then Dick means fat. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he's in, I believe in that book, which I still haven't read, but I haven't it, either. <laughs> it has uh, two characters. One's named Philip, Phil Dick, and the other one's named Horse Lover Fat, and they're sort of not friends. <laughs> it's hilarious. I'm reading a review, uh, not a review, I, um, a biography of him right now. Oh, how cool. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's paperback, but uh, <laughs> I would, I am enjoying it. It's got lots of footnotes, which is happy. I, I like footnotes. I'm in the minority. Yeah, uh, so, I guess um, Phil Giganti's a really good narrator, so that would be, that would be possibly something I'd be interested in. But I, I don't know about mainstream. I'll have to read more about this. Yeah. I don't I don't know if I like mainstream stuff. And I, I've never read one of his mainstream books, so maybe his mainstream is, like, totally up my alley. Could be. Next up. Well, and this one doesn't really fit in any category. I just stuck it here. Uh, but it's by a publisher I don't think we've seen before. Arundel Publishing. Does that sound familiar? Oh, mm -mm. Uh, this is Chasing Eden. It's the first in a trilogy by Sharon Linnea and B.K. Scherer. And this is a publisher that hasn't put out a lot. And this is their first audiobook, as far as I could tell. Um, it's about U.S. Army chaplain Jamie Richards is stunned when her civilian friend Adara Dunbar staggers, mortally wounded, out of the Iraqi night. 
Her death is not in vain when she delivers an urgent package for Jamie to drop at the ruins of the ancient city of Ur, now inside a U.S. military base. The question is, what could be so important that Adara had to be murdered, and how does her killer know Jamie's name? Jamie is pulled into a labyrinth of ancient secrets as she joins forces with Adara's mysterious brother. Um, Astounding truths about Adara's mission and the Iraq war are revealed, some of the roots reaching back to the birth of civilization itself and the Garden of Eden. Neat. Yeah. That's the right area for it, right? Yeah, it sounds interesting. Little twist on kind of a military story. Uh, mm-hmm. Mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, a rundle. I I was thinking a runcible so I was. Oh, yeah. I, I was too. <laughs> yeah. That, that would have been very very. <laughs> a rundle is a name of a town in Sussex, um, mm. and it it says the etymology of that is uh, Dell of Arun, uh, on which the river is. Uh, located, the town is located on the river Ar- Arun. Okay. <laughs> so, that makes sense. Kind of like Rivendell. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. It's riven through the mountains, right? It's mm-hmm. a crack in the earth or something. A crack in the middle <laughs> earth. Get it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to point out that I just made a Tolkien reference. Well done. I've been assimilated. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And that you was another cool. reference. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, okay. Fiction, space, space fiction. Space Yay. fiction. <laughs> okay. Um, someone else should do this one so I can talk about the next one. Okay. Uh, Darrow is a red, a member of the lowest caste in the color-coded society of the future. Like his fellow reds, he works all day, believing that he and his people are making the surface of Mars livable for future generations. Yet he spends his life willingly, knowingly that his blood and sweat will one day result in a better world for his children. But Darrow and his kind have been betrayed. Soon he discovers that humanity reached the surface generations ago. Vast cities and sprawling parks spread across the planet. Darrow, and Reds like him, are nothing more than slaves to a decadent ruling class. Inspired by a longing for justice and driven by the memory of lost love, Darrow sacrifices everything to infiltrate the legendary Institute, a proving ground for the dominant gold caste, where the next generation of humanity's overlords struggle for power. He'll be forced to compete for a life in the very future of civilization against the best and most brutal of society's ruling class. There he will stop at nothing to bring down his enemies, even if it means he has to become one of them to do so. <laughs> I like I like that you're 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 trying to force a, a poetic meter or something onto the <laughs> sentences, but it doesn't work. No, it really doesn't. Uh, no, the, it doesn't have iambic pentameter. No, um, it doesn't. Uh, besides that, it doesn't sound terrible. It's funny because another description that's online explains uh-huh. more about how it's set in Mars. That he's a hell diver. They live in the caves beneath the surface. Uh, <laughs> kind that, of important that, information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because like, how could you not know you're on the surface of a planet, right? Right. Um, the golden. I, I don't know about the red, but the gold um, makes me think of uh, Plato. Plato's Republic has um, he divides this people up into three classes: gold, silver, and bronze. Gold being the philosopher kings. Silver being the guardians, the um, 
the policemen, basically, the enforcers of the law, and the bronze being just the regular workers, which is it's also kind of where um, I think uh, Brave New World gets its gammas and deltas and betas and alphas. And oh, right. That. And then well, he the rib- shows storytellers to the gate. <laughs> <laughs> well, the red, yeah. the red makes me think of a couple of things, because um, the red, of course, is Mars and, you know, Martian <laughs> soil, and also it, it has some communist uh, proletariat overtones hmm. to me. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but you're right. Uh, overthrow. And I just noticed that um, Goodreads has a giveaway going on. They're giving 100 copies away. Hmm. <laughs> so your odds are pretty good. That's a lot. Just of the first book, yeah. Um, maybe the, maybe it's pretty good then. They're confident in it. How many people apply to that? 799. So oh, one wow. out of every eight. We'll get a book. It's pretty sweet. Mm. Yeah. All right. So the next listing I will talk about because I know about almost every story in here. Um, it's called "The Early Stories of Philip K. Dick" uh, it's by Philip K. Dick and read by Chris Lutkin. I'm not familiar with that narrator. Dreamscape Audiobooks is the publisher, and it's 12 hours 25 minutes. Just brand new out. So I'll just read the description here. Every legend has a beginning. Here, Dreamscape Media presents a collection of short stories penned by Philip K. Dick early in his masterful and legendary writing career. Stories include Beyond Lies the Wub, Beyond the Door, The Hanging Stranger, Mr. Spaceship, The Gun, Tony and the Beatles, The Eyes Have It, The Variable Man, Second Variety, The Skull, The Crystal Crypt, Piper in the Woods, and The Defenders. Um, I expect that they're going to have uh, even more early stories out because uh, there are more than that now available. But 12 hours, 25 minutes, that's a full-size book. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read all of those stories and some of them are very, very good and some of them are okay and some of them are terrible. <laughs> um, Beyond Lies the Web is his first published story and uh, I don't know if we've talked about that on a podcast ex- exactly, but it's 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 really short. I just actually found this is the very last public domain story. I think I'm completely finished finding all the PDFs of the original magazine. So somebody, I, I think somebody should package those up as a book, a paper book. I'd love to have a paper book with all of Philip Giddick's public domain stories in there because the illustrations are beautiful. Um, Beyond the Door, we did a podcast on that. I think that's one of his best um stories it's so strange and it, if you don't look deeply at it you would not see how it's doing cool stuff um hanging stranger another podcast we've done mr spaceship not so great but it has a cool idea the idea there is um there's a human brain running a computer uh not a computer a rocket ship and it goes out of control the gun, not super awesome. Tony and the Beatles is really strange because it's a children's story, um, but it's got sort of harsh politics and harsh reality in in it with this, you know, YA character, and it's it's very strange. Um, the eyes have it is barely a page long. It's uh, very. Um, very funny, very philokidic sense of humor, and in completely crazy. Variable Man is, is probably the longest story in here, um, and that one is not super awesome because of its length. Its length makes it 
not so great, but it's a good it's a good idea. It's time travel. Second Variety was turned into a movie uh, called Screamers, and that actually is pretty good. It's it's sort of um, the story. I mean, it's sort of a uh, uh, how do I know I'm me? What makes him him? <laughs> you know, sort of story. The Skull, another time travel story, also quite good. Crystal Crypt, I don't get that story. I don't understand what he's trying to do or what he's trying to say exactly. But it's not terrible, it's just not great. Piper in the Woods, again, I have no idea what he's trying to say in this story, except it's about people turning into vegetables. So (laughs) you can take that with, you know, (laughs) going in and maybe you want to think about that. The Defenders, I can't remember very well, but I I think it's kind of similar to The Gun, which is uh, robots versus... Um, robots out of control uh, doing programming. So, I've just summed up the whole book for you there. <laughs> I think I would like Sorry. to be a rutabaga. Yeah, it's very. that story is very strange. I've I, I read it a few times and I'm like, what's he saying here? It's kind of about psychology. There's a bunch of people, they go to a planet, um, they're at like a military base or something. It could be like about the Vietnam War or some, some sort of, you know, the Korean War where bunch of people that go there and they're stationed there and they just start going crazy they start like sitting in the fields uh, soaking up the sun and not wanting to fight cool yeah it's got something going on that i i don't understand and the thing is is there's a lot like that like beyond the door for the longest time i had no idea why it was the way it was but then listening listening to it for the seventh time i was like (laughs) oh i got it yeah and it was great. It was a great unlock. An upgrade. All that stuff. Good books are like that. You can just... Mm-hmm. And that thing's short, so it's very easy. Well, yeah. It's not like uh, American Gods, which I do read from time to time. Uh, how does that hold up? Because I've only read it once, and I loved it. I, I still love it. It's one of my one of my go-to books. The audiobook is how... I mean, I heard it. Yeah, George Guadal is amazing. There's a full-cast version so now, good. which is good, but... He's, yeah, George Goodall is fantastic. I mean, the 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 scene where Mr. Wednesday re- reappears, I was like, oh my god. Yeah. That is perfect. Perfect for audio, perfect narration. It was, it was uh, one of those times where, you know, just love the medium. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Uh, Tam, why didn't you talk about Starship Grifters? Okay. A spacefaring ne'er-do-well with more bravado than brains, Rex Nihilio flies <laughs> oh, the known universe in a tireless quest for his own personal gain. But when he fleeces a wealthy weapons dealer in a high-stakes poker game, he ends up winning a worthless planet. That sounds familiar. And, oh, <laughs> and owing an outstanding debt more vast than space itself. The only way for Rex to escape a lifetime of torture on the prison world Gola Gatraz is to score a big payday by pulling off his biggest scam. By getting mixed up in the struggle between the tyrannical Malarchian Empire and the plucky rebels of the revolting front <laughs> and trying to double-cross them both may be his biggest mistake. Luckily for Rex, his frustrated but faithful robot psychic has the cyber smarts to deal with buxom bounty hunters, pudgy <laughs> princesses, overbearing overlords, and interstellar evangelists. Also keeping wow. Rex's martini glass filled. This sounds great. Sounds fun. I guess it's uh, humorous. It sounds like it's uh, playing with 
uh, Han Solo slash uh, uh, who's the guy who owned the Millennium Falcon before? Oh, uh, Jabba the Hutt? No, 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 Lando no. no. Oh, Lando Calrissian. Sorry, Lando Calrissian. Yeah, Jabba's the one he owns, owes money to. That's right. Right. <laughs> uh, no, Jabba technically should own it because right, he's exactly. Yeah, forsaken the deck. It doesn't matter. But the important part is his name is Rex Nilio. King nothing. <laughs> King nothing. Yeah, King of nothing. Um, and the planet Gulag Traz. Gulag <laughs> You don't want to end up on Gulag Traz. No. Um, that, it sounds pretty good. Casey's got it though. Yeah. And it doesn't come out to the public until the end of June, but they yeah. Oh, wow. We don't know who the narrator is. Nope. That's so strange. Isn't there a Robert Sheckley story where he wins a planet and there's like a robot wife or something? Uh, it sounds like a Robert Sheckley story. I don't know that one. There's. Well, yeah, I mean, we did a read-along. We did a couple read-alongs on a couple Sheckleys. One is um, uh, where he ends up on a planet as a prisoner. And the other one is he's switching bodies. Mind Swap is the second one. The first one's called The Status Civilization. Maybe that was it. Um, but the, uh, although he's a humorist, um, it doesn't. This sounds like it's it's all about the humor. Whereas uh, Sheckley is more, I don't know, dry, dry with his humor. Jenny, what are you highlighting? I'm skipping down to our next category. All right, your favorite. Well, yeah, this category has gotten bigger and bigger. It used to be post-apocalypse, and now it's apocalypse and unrest and dystopia and zombies and, and oh yeah, every other thing. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and because I, I have to, to be talk an official about unrest genre. Unrest is a great name for a genre. <laughs> it <I mean>. is. <laughs> uh, and this book doesn't really fit into those things, but I didn't know where to put it. But I had to talk about it mostly because I'm excited about the narrator. Um, it's Authority by Jeff Vandermeer, read by Bronson Pincho. Woo-hoo. And it's, it's his Southern Reach trilogy. It's the second book, and it comes from Blackstone Audio. Um, I've read the first book in this trilogy, and I've bought the print of the second, but now I'm thinking I'm going to have to buy it twice because I think I want to listen to it instead of reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, for 30 years, a secret agency called the Southern Reach has monitored expeditions into Area X, a remote and lush terrain mysteriously sequestered from civilization. After the 12th expedition, the Southern Reach is in disarray, and John Rodriguez, a.k.a. Control, is the team's newly appointed head. From a series of interrogations, a cachet of hidden notes, and more than 200 hours of profoundly troubling video footage, the secrets of Area X begin to reveal themselves. And what they expose pushes Control to confront disturbing truths about both himself and the agency he's promised to serve. Now, I have kind of... (laughs) I'm Facebook quote-unquote friends with Jeff Vandermeer. He's been posting about control for like two years, <laughs> and I had no idea what it was. So wow, uh, this will be really interesting to read. I, you know, in the first book, it's about four scientists that go into Area X, and so you know how, like on the Martian, you have the guy on Mars, and then you have the people at NASA. Mm-hmm. It, like to me, I keep thinking of that book, like. I know it's not the same, but just that uh, parallel story sounds like mm-hmm. it may be a simultaneous or maybe immediately after the first one. I'm not quite sure, but I'm really interesting to, interested to see that side of it because the first book is you, you never know exactly what has really gone on. 
um, and you're left with a lot more questions than answers. So yeah. this book should be really helpful for that. Who narrated the first one in the series? Um, I can't remember her name. It's the same person that did uh, The Hunger Games. Mm. I didn't listen to that one. I just read the print. I wonder if it's ba- like it's based on the fact of who's in the first book versus who's in the second one. Right, because the first book is a female biologist. Mm. And, of course, this this book is John Rodriguez. So mm-hmm. so it's it's not like they couldn't get the first narrator. It's It's probably all well planned out here to make sense. Yeah, I think so. And he's just one of my favorite readers. So I, I, I want I I to him on the, on the phone trying to get him on the podcast and he's like, call my agent. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> I kind of want uh, Antonio Banderas to narrate a character named John Rodriguez. <laughs> the slime on the walls was creeping everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so you could do it. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't sustain that for more than 30 seconds. What, oh, is Metro 2333 a video game? I think I... It sounds familiar somehow. Yeah, I couldn't remember. I think it is. Somebody should read that while I look that up. <laughs> I'll read it. All good. It's by Dmitry Glukowski, read by Rupert Degas. Degas? Mm-hmm. From Brilliance Audio. The year is 2033. The world has been reduced to rubble, humanity is nearly extinct, and the half-destroyed cities have become uninhabitable through radiation. Beyond their boundaries, they say, lie endless burned-out deserts and the remains of splintered forests. Survivors still remember the past greatness of humankind, but the last remains of civilization, with an S, have already become a distant memory. Man has handed over stewardship of the Earth to new life forms. Mutated by radiation, they are better adapted to the new world. Certainly sounds like a video game. A few Mm -hmm. score thousand survivors live on, not knowing whether they are the only ones left on Earth, living in the Moscow Metro, the biggest air raid shelter ever built. Stations have become mini-statelets. Their people uniting around ideas, religions, water filters, or the need to repulse enemy incursion. Uh, VDNKH is the northernmost northernmost inhabited station on its line, one of the metro's best stations and secure. But a new and terrible threat has appeared. Artyom, a young man living in VDNKH, is given the task of penetrating to the heart of the metro to alert everyone to the danger and to get help. He holds the future of his station in his hands, the whole metro, and maybe the whole of humanity. Sounds good. Um, I can see why it's popular. It's, it says there's also a sequel to Metro 2034. Um, I was looking at the Wikipedia entry. There is a video game. Um, I think actually Brian Alexander was saying his kid was going to play this game now that I think about is it. Is that well, why maybe. it sounds so familiar? I, I thought it yeah, sounded really familiar. I think that's right. And um, it, it apparently is hugely popular, not just in Russia, but uh, around the world. Uh, publications in more than 20 countries. And, um. I don't know. Does that mean, mean there's a movie on the way? Maybe. Oh, boy. Franchise. You know, I really like these dystopian near-future worlds where they're contained in something, like um, Wool and the Silo series all happen in these buildings, and yeah. this all happens in metro stations. I think it helps them, you know, it helps to, like, limit things down Absolutely. when you're telling well, a story like that. Aristotelian uh, unity of time, place, and action and whatnot. <laughs> I love that you're applying uh, Aristotle's <laughs> poetics to uh, what is clearly a very popular 
uh, video game <laughs> book series. I love it. Um, the uh, the web the website for uh, the Wikipedia entry uh, has a ton of detail, which makes me think this is a huge hit because usually you don't get that for a novel, right? Um, but it says on Goodreads it's getting a three point nine out of five, Barnes and Noble four four out of five. So it's it's popular and it's obviously got something going on. Um, I think it was popular in Russia or something, and then it got translated. Yeah, yeah, and it's old too. It's not like a brand new book. It came out two thousand five, but it it's got sustaining power. The original publication as a paper book in the U.S. was two thousand ten. So here we are, four years later, and it's still making tracks into. You know, we're, we're approaching. Uh, 2033. <laughs> it's still popular. Nice. I, I don't know. This sounds pretty good. Hey, Jenny, are you going to see that movie Snowpiercer about the apocalypse where they're all on a train? Maybe. I haven't what? heard of it before. I, I saw the trailer. It's it, it's very Japanese or whatever it is. It's very foreign. Korean. Yeah, I think it was originally a movie made in another country than they... It's Korean, I think, yeah. yeah. It's it's kind of strange. It's got a strange ethos, but um, that's kind of good, which is also true of the Russian stuff, right? That's why people like it. It's, yeah. Don't have all these tropes that we're so used to, you know, that they've made ruts in our minds. Mm-hmm. You get other kinds of tropes that seem completely legitimate to them and make no sense to us. Yeah. We could have we, a, a new category, bleakness and paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> all right. All right. Next up. Next up okay. is uh, Omega Days. Okay. Okay, Omega oh. Days <laughs> by John L. Campbell. Eight million walking dead stalk the San Francisco Bay Area. Isn't that what it's like now? Um, more <laughs> on the way. Burn. Sc- scattered refugees. I, wa- I love San Francisco. It's cool. Anyway, so scattered refugees. A, a priest with a bloody, bloody past. A college girl turned sniper. Escaped San Quentin inmates and others will quickly learn that the three most important rules of survival make your bullets count, don't fall behind, don't get bitten. Fast-paced <laughs> and packed with zombie action. Book one of the Omega Days series uh, fights off the apocalypse with a scream and tears California to pieces. Lights off the apocalypse. <laughs> uh, Richard Ferrone is the narrator. He's actually really good. Um, okay. Heard much of him lately, or I haven't seen much of him lately, but he's a very good narrator. Um, big fan of his. Uh, it doesn't say the length, so if this was like short, like four or five hours, I I might actually go for it. But if it's like one of those twenty-four hour zombie books, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. oh my god, this Ugh. is a slog. <laughs> Just more bullets through the heads and first couple hours of World War Z were great, and then I was like, oh. Uh, huh to do more yeah alright uh, we're scrolling down to Hibernal 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 yeah Hibernia means something right I don't know it's, uh, it's like a winter it's a uh, huh. winter isn't it I yeah there's an oil rig called Hibernia etymology see I'm off doing this <laughs> yes better read this okay I will um I'm just really interested of, in this. Characteristic of or occurring in winter, hibernal. Nice. Nice, damn. <laughs> Good catch. 
Well, this is by Mark Healy and produced by Mark Healy. He's in Australia. And the only description I have, because I haven't tried it out yet, is just from his website, that this blends instrumental music with elements of audiobooks and theater. He writes the music and the script himself. And the synopsis is a man who carries out an empty existence in a near-future dystopia. And you can listen to it free online. Well, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. I should do that. Um, uh, also, Hibernia is the classic Latin name for Ireland. Hmm. I thought it was either Ireland or Scotland. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, so for the Romans, the uh, Hibernia is like, oh, it's so cold up here in Ireland. Bring us to the sunny climes of uh, <laughs> uh, Tuscany. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Huh. All right. Um, well, I guess we should click through and, and listen to that right now. No. Continue <laughs> it after the podcast. Yes. We can. By the way, I went back and checked, and Omega Days is 12 and a half hours. Mm. Okay. So they're going to be in it for the long haul. <laughs> Too long for me, but um, it, it didn't say... Oh, yeah, it's, it's part of a series. It has a so. crazy, scary cover. It's like a oh, black really? and white face with a red eye. Ew. It's kind of effective. All right. Now, everybody's favorite category, urban fantasy slash paranormal romance. Well, you you jest, but um, the first book on this list, our reviewers, of course, were so excited about Skin Game, which is the 15th book in the Dresden Files series. By Jim Butcher, of course, narrated by James Marsters. Yes, he's back. back. (laughs) This is from Penguin Audio. Um, which at this point is an imprint of Random House Audio, but that's a longer story. And it doesn't even matter that this one is almost a day long. Rob has already listened, and Mm. the review will be posting later this week because he was so excited. (laughs) Uh, So let's look and see what Harry Dresden's doing in this one. Um, Well, Queen Mab has just traded Harry's skills to pay off one of her debts, and now he must help a group of supernatural villains led by one of Harry's most dreaded and despised enemies, Nicodemus Archleone, maybe, to break into the highest security vault in town so that they can then access the highest security vault in the Never Never. Hmm. So inside of that, there's the reference to the Queen of Air and Darkness. That is uh, also the title of a book called by T.H. White. Hmm. Uh, author of the sword and the stone. So yeah. this is the, the once in future king. This is the King Arthur legend. Right. And Queen Mab, she's from, is that Shakespeare? From uh, Midsummer Night's Dream? Dream? I don't, I don't recall. Sorry. Um, Sorry. She's a fae. In, um, in Butcher's world, there's the summer court and there's the winter court. And so she's the, and each one, each of those courts has a queen and a, a daughter and a knight and something else. And so Harry Dresden in the last one has become the, he's been kind of enlisted as the winter, reluctantly uh, enlisted as the winter knight. So he's Mm. basically her pawn now. Right. Mm. I'm sure it's not something he wanted to do. (laughs) No, no, there's no love lost there. Um, I think I reviewed the last book. I can't remember. Um, I, these books have kind of worn on for me and I, Almost decided I'd stop reading the series, but I, I discovered it. Books in the series. I just can't stop finding out what happens to Harry, so I'll read this one. <laughs> I, I tried to read the last book, but I didn't read the ones before that, so I was too confused to. 
Oh, yeah, you would be. Yeah, it's not something you can pick up in the middle. Hmm. Uh, we've got a series of other titles, which we will link to on the podcast, show notes. But um, there's a new series. This is called Half Bad, uh, part of the Half-Life series, or I guess it's book one of the Half-Life series by Sally Green, narrated by Carl Prekop. Uh, and it says age levels 11 to 13. So, damn, this is just for... No, it's just for me. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I'm holding mentally. No, no, no. <laughs> um, no, that's mean, Jesse. Bad Jesse. Okay, in modern-day England, witches live alongside humans. White witches, who are good. Black witches, who are evil. And a 16-year-old Nathan, who is... Who is both? Nathan's father is the world's most powerful and cruel black witch, and his mother is dead. He is hunted from all sides, trapped in a cage, beaten and handcuffed. Nathan must escape before his seventeenth birthday, at which point he will receive three gifts from his father and come into his own as a witch, or else he will die. But how can Nathan find his father when every his every action is tracked, when there is no one safe to trust, not even family, not even the girl he loves? Hmm. Um, it's kind of Harry Potter-ish. Yeah, it's a sure. feel that urban-y, does it? Yeah. Uh, is Harry Potter urban fantasy? That can't uh, be right. No. The first chapters of each book are, but other than that, yeah. Yeah. It's suburban fantasy. Yeah. Well, yeah, Privet Drive. <laughs> does he have any tattoos? <laughs> Just the one Sarah. on his forehead. Sixteen-year-old oh, yeah. Nathan. Right. That's a good point. He does. It's very much an urban fantasy now. I just thought I'd include it because we don't see a lot of YA titles coming through from our um, publishers. So even though there's this, sorry, fantasy and science fiction are so popular in that age level, and this is kind of the preteen level. Yeah, funny that uh, I guess that's right. That the they always have the character a little older than the the target audience. Yeah, yeah. YA slash. what do they call it when it's not YA? It's right below that. I call it young. preteen, but I don't know what they call it officially. Something like that. And then they can like feel juvenile, all the feelings. There's like a juvenile section in my bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I noticed that uh, is kind of interesting, he must receive three gifts. That makes us think of Jesus, right? Hmm. Yeah. He gets three gifts. Um, I've got, in my classroom, I've got a little chart. Uh, like a, I've got a whole bunch of little charts in my classroom that I've made up so I can point to things for students when they're doing my high pressure writing. I say, okay, you're writing. And then they're writing and I say, and they say, I have a question. I point. <laughs> oh man! So the, and so uh, on one of them is about the rule of three. Uh, when using examples, use three examples when you're, uh, you know, you're making a point, you can make, three points, you know, uh, first, second, and third, like that. But you don't even have to say first, second, and third. And then on the examples that I have there are, like, the three bears, you know, the story of the three bears, the there's the three witches from Macbeth, and mm-hmm. uh, the one that I didn't put up, there's a bunch of them, the one I didn't put up is uh, Jesus and the three gifts, and the three wise men. Yeah. Which is probably you know one of the oldest ones, but you do you guys notice that I read it in a book years and years and years ago that if you are writing use use threes 
and the explanation was it's magic. That was <laughs> what I loved about it. Mm, it's great. just magic. Don't think too hard about it. It's just magic. Have you have you gone through books noticing this pattern? Well, and in comedy, the rule of three, where you can tell the same joke three times, but the third time it needs to have a twist. Right. Yes. And and the other th- cool thing about threes is is you can do like three pairs, so it's actually six. Um, or you can do three sets of three, um, and it's still the rule of three. This rule of three still works. So actually, like in Goldilocks and the Three Bears, um, you there's the bears, the porridge, the beds. Yeah, yeah, it happens again and again and again. Yeah. And and, and there, the magic of that story is is in the telling. You can remember everything. Once you know, uh, once you've heard the story, you can actually tell that story to anybody and not forget any of the parts. So it's a maybe a carryover from oral storytelling yeah. practices. Yeah, I think where it's it memory. Is. Plus, when you have three, it's not too hot and not too cold. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just right. Just right. I know John Scalzi writes his novels in three acts. I think that might be from movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is uh, Seth, you were talking Aristotle's Poetics earlier. Is there a rule of three in there? I can't remember. Not that I recall, but I've not. I've, I've never read the whole thing, or if I have, I don't remember it's, it. It's not super long. Um, but yeah, it's it's cool. All right. Um, we're out of uh, the YA and into fiction, traditional epic fantasy. Yeah, and um, I'll just mention these two books. Briefly, Dragon Bones and Dragon Blood, Hurog mm-hmm. number one and two by Patricia Briggs. Uh, both of them are read by Joe Manganiello. I don't know how you say his name. I'm sorry, Joe. Um, from Brilliance Audio, but they were out in print over 10 years ago, so it's interesting to me that they're coming out now in audio. Um, I'll just read the description of the first one. Riding into a war that's heating up on the border, Ward, the new lord of Hurog, is sure he's on the fast track to glory. But soon his mission takes a deadly turn, for he has seen a pile of magical dragon bones hidden deep beneath Hurog Keep. The bones could prove to be dangerous in the wrong hands, and Ward is certain his enemies will stop at nothing to possess them. Mm. Mm. Hurog sounds like it should be something. Like something, I was trying to find the etymology of that, but it's it's not coming up. It's it's on, only thing that comes up is Patricia Briggs. <laughs> but doesn't it sound like uh, Chernavog or something like that? It sounds like Welsh, very, uh, maybe. Yeah, and dragons seem like, very yeah. Welsh. <laughs> yeah, they do, and like Jacobin, mm-hmm. right? It's very mm-hmm. uh, ends of the English Isle sort of. Are you guys familiar with Patricia Briggs? She wrote the, and I, don't, I haven't read them, but she, actually, I think I did read part of one. She wrote the Urban Fantasy, um, oh, Mercedes, I can't remember her name, the the, um, the engineer. Mercy Thompson. Who, Mercy Thompson, that's right. With the greatest uh, tattoos in all of Urban Fantasy. Woodruff tattoos, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so she's been out there. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is like a Hollander type uh, romantic fantasy. With dragons. Right. Or dragon bones, anyways. Uh, Rob Zed's got them both. Mm-hmm. He's, he's got the commute from hell, apparently. He's, yeah. he has to, it's not anymore. He's got audiobooks, but he must have a long commute. Yeah. Those are 
you know, those are 10 hours each. He goes through audiobooks like crazy, which is why we love having him as a reviewer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Next so, up. So, Thief's Magic. It's the first in the Millennium Rule, either series or trilogy, by Trudy Canavan, read by Grant Cartwright and Hannah Norris. This makes me think it's a Belinda audio title from that Brilliance puts out, because Grant Cartwright is like the Australian male narrator. <laughs> Only one down there, yeah, apparently. <laughs> I see him on everything. <laughs> Maybe he's just really good. Yeah. Someone else wants to In a world where an industrial revolution is powered by magic, Tien, a student of archaeology, unearths a sentient book called Vela. Hmm. Once a young sorcerer bookbinder, Vela was transformed into a useful tool by one of the greatest sorcerers of history. Since then, she has been collecting information, including a vital clue to the disaster of Tian's, uh, the, to the disaster Tian's world faces. Elsewhere, in a land ruled by the priests, Riel, the dyer's daughter, has been taught that to use magic is to steal from the angels. Yet she knows she has a talent for it, and that there is a corrupter in the city willing to teach her how to use it, should she dare to risk the angel's wrath. But not everything in Tien and Riel... Oh, not everything is as Tien and Riel have been raised to believe. Not the nature of magic, nor the laws of their lands, and not even the people they trust. This also sounds YA, even though it doesn't say it. Yeah. Don't you? I, young sorcerer, bookbinder, and... and uh, so it's like a guy, hey, it's a guy falling in love with his book, Jenny. Mm. That's what this story is about. I don't know if there's a falling in love in, in there, but... Maybe I should have read possible. it. Possible. <laughs> or, or maybe it's a, it's, it's a uh, what do you call that, a triangular relationship, because it's the oh, book, boy. And then there's Riel. the guy's daughter, and then there's the student of archaeology. Hmm. Damn. And then there's that whole moral moral choice with the um, you know do you follow in your priestly society or do you learn magic? There's that whole moral thing that why is so good at. Sorry, Tam. I was gonna say uh, maybe Jenny should make a new like library fantasy category. (laughs) (laughs) Would that make more people write them? Because that would be awesome. (laughs) It would. Um, That reminds me of the comic that I was reading, Jenny. Let me tell you about the comic I was reading. Oh, it's please really, do. It's really good. <laughs> it's called Sex, Sex Criminals. I've heard of it. The first, first book, uh, not the first book, the first issue was like uh, really cheap. You know, they do this thing where they charge a buck something and you you get the first one and you say, eh, not so good. But every once in a while you'll find a good one and then you can start with the series mm-hmm. or get, usually what I do is I just buy the first trade paperback. Um, and the art on that one was really good. The art was really good. And the story was um, fresh, and the the idea is there's a girl, she's telling her story from when she first learned to masturbate. <laughs> and you say, okay, that sounds horrible. Um, why would this be a book I want to read? Not horrible, I guess, I, I guess exactly, but sort of inappropriate. Um, but it's just really well done. It's very funny. Um, and she... She also is in love with libraries and uh, books. And then one day, near the end of the the first issue, she meets a um, uh, a guy at a party. And when they have sex, the world stops. And uh, 
I, then I guess they're going to go on a crime spree <laughs> because they can stop. Oh, they can stop time. Is that the first thing you would do when you stop time is go on a crime spree? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, That's not the first thing I would do. It doesn't seem like a crime book in the first issue. Well, um, then why is that what you assume? I, 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 I have title. a feeling they're going to go rob money to save the library is what I think. Oh, uh, okay. I guess it's worth it for that. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, the characters are really well done and the art is really good. Um, and it's got a really funny sense of humor. Um, and you know, I tweeted a couple of pictures from the uh, from the book, but I mean, it, it is it's sort of taboo area because it's you know it's got a, a young girl like I don't know ten or twelve or whatever age girls learn to masturbate, wow. um, and uh, and she's she's she, the story is being told from her as an older point of view and so she's showing up in the frames and saying just turn the page don't worry it gets better like that <laughs> or not right. better yeah she exactly. kind of breaks the fourth wall yeah it's very fourth wall breaky and um the art is really good you've read this tam yeah i've, I've read it the uh, first trade paperback is in stores now i had a feeling this was more of a tam book than anybody else's just because of all the sex element <laughs> but <laughs> Well, I heard about this on the Comic I'm, Squee podcast that Tam recommended to me. That's right. Oh, really? That. Yeah. There, there you go. Uh, how did they they squee about it as well? Oh yeah, they were they were they lavished on it. Yeah, it's and, written and by Matt Fraction, who's a big uh, favorite. He's, he's hot right now. I don't know what else he's written. He, but... he writes a uh, Hawkeye, which everyone really likes. Hmm. Have you read that? Yeah, I, I try to, but it's very, um, I don't know, con- too concise for me. I didn't really get into it, but a lot of people really like it. But there's this one issue where it's totally from a dog's point of view, huh. so it's told all through uh, pictures. So uh, you, you might I find did, it neat. I might I might uh, like to try that. I, I like, see, I, I always forget, like I say, there are, you know, there's not many great writers in any one time. I point to Neil Gaiman, what a great fantasist he is. Uh, you know, there's a few other people alive who are great writers who all read pretty much anything they write. Um, but I always forget, like, Alan Moore, the only reason people don't know him more is because he only writes comics, right? But he is a great, great writer. Uh, Luke just did a review of each issue of Watchmen. Oh, wow. As he was reading them, which I thought was a pretty interesting way of doing it. You know, he reads an issue and then he st- press stop, he goes, reads another issue and press record and so he reviews that as he, he's reading through it and um, it is it is amazing storytelling this is why we have to talk about comics because uh, it's just another form of writing except for like there's no audiobook version which I don't is care. probably why we don't talk about it very often <laughs> might be, but, yeah. I'm just saying but it's like the crime fiction corollary for SSF audio that 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 works as well, but you also have to think of it this way, Jenny. We're on a podcast, so it's okay. <laughs> I wasn't complaining. Oh. I just think you know we've seen some people experiment with it, but it's like the last form that probably will never fully translate. It's just you just oh. can't. Yeah. No, it, it, it it's its own thing. It's like the pl- you know it's like um, uh, some plays are are ba- better on stage and some plays are better as audio drama, but um, comics are worth talking about every once in a while because they're really good. Mm-hmm. I agree. Hey, Jenny, when the... M&I, solidarity. 
Yeah. When when uh, the couple first meet, they talk about Pinchon and Nabokov at a party. Yeah, it's totally a Jenny book, really. Yeah, I mean, it sounds good. Um, Tam, send your copy to Jenny, then have Jenny send it to me. <laughs> yeah, because I get to pay the expensive shipping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's only ten bucks. It should be at any uh, brick and mortar bookstore. Maybe I'll just pick up one on my own. But it has like this weird cover where it's kind of blurry, and a couple is making out. It looks very illicit. Yeah, it is. It, it, the cover of the first issue is it's sort of a naked woman, and over her genitals are a book. You know, I have a friend who is in a. I call it the hipster book club, but he doesn't call it that. Um, they only read books that are embarrassing to read in public. Oh wow! This would be oh, perfect. I'll, I'll yeah. pass it on. Totally. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, I'm going to pick it up. So, Tam, you say the first trade's good, right? Yeah. All right, I'm going to buy it then. Next up. Okay, there's a, another story. I'll, I'll tell you about this book, but then there's a story to it that is really funny. It's called The River Man, The River Man Trilogy Number 1. It's another preteen book. Uh, recorded books tends to do quite a bit of these. It's by Aaron Starmer, narrated by Graham Halstead. And as far as I know, this is Aaron Starmer's first book. And the description is, Alistair Cleary is the kid who everyone trusts. Fiona Loomis is not the typical girl next door. Alistair hasn't really thought of her since they were little kids until she shows up at his doorstep with a proposition. She wants him to write her biography. What begins as an odd vanity project gradually turns into a frightening glimpse into the mind of a potentially troubled girl. Fiona says that in her basement, there's a portal that leads to a magical world where a creature called the Riverman is stealing the souls of children. And Fiona's soul could be next. If Fiona really believes what she's saying, Alistair fears she may be crazy. But if it's true, her life could be at risk. It's up to Alistair to separate fact from fiction, fantasy from reality. Now, fantasy from reality, the reviewer that we have listening to this one he emailed me one day. He's like, do you know this author? And I was like, no, I don't think so. Because my name is in the book. Right. First oh, and I last wish. name. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just a random character of one of the kids whose souls gets taken. But that was weird. You've been tuckerized. I guess. I'm famous. I hear that in, I hear that in book two, Tam is murdered. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We're going to have to read these very closely. Maybe Aaron Starmer is the pen name of someone we know. <laughs> it's possible. It doesn't sound like a totally real name. Starmer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is this you, Seth? <laughs> yeah, Seth. Come That's out, come out wherever you are. <laughs> 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 it sounded like an interesting concept. Yeah, it sounds good. I particularly like that it's in her basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Suburban fantasy again. Hmm. All right. Uh, we're into historical fiction, somehow related to SFF. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. The Ring and the Crown, The Ring and the Crown, number one, is the book series, I guess. Melissa De La Cruz is the author and narrated by Jennifer Aikida, published from Recorded Books, 10 hours, 23 minutes. And here's the description. Princess Marie Elizabeth, heir to the Lily Throne, and Morgan Murden, a bastard daughter of the Mage of England, grew up together. Quiet and gentle, Marie has never lived up to the ambitions of her mother, Queen Eleanor II, supreme ruler of the Franco-British Empire. Uh, with the help of head, 
of the head Merlin, uh, that I guess is a job title, um, Eleanor has maintained her stranglehold on the world's only source of magic. She rules the most powerful empire the world has ever seen, but Eleanor's extended lifespan is nearing its end. The princess must marry and produce an heir. When Marie is promised to the heir of the Prussian throne, she turns to Morgan, desperate for help. Uh, to Morgan, desperate for help. The best friends from a previous... No, sorry. From a perilous plan... No, I can't read. The best friends form a perilous plan. Morgan, a powerful magician herself, will take on Marie's face allowing the princess to escape with the boy she loves and live the quiet life she has always wanted. And Morgan will get what she always wanted, uh, what she always dreamed of, the chance to, to rule. But the hunger for the power of Lenoran, England... Oh, I see. As Eleanor. Lenore, yeah. Lenoran, England, runs deeper than anyone could imagine. In the end, there is only one rule that matters in Eleanor's court. Trust no one. Uh, good. It's yeah. It also sounds kind of YA, even though yeah. I guess they're adults. Um, but there's there's this is interesting because it's it's alternate history. Yeah, right? and it sounds like it's um, 12th century um, Eleanor. I'm presuming it's Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah, who, um, you know, I think was she was related to uh, Henry the Second of England of Thomas and Beckett fame, and the Marie might be Marie de France, who wrote yeah. you know a bunch of uh, songs, lays, and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then of course Morgan um, harkens to Arthurian legend, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Morgan Le Fay, by the way, her last name is like she's a fairy. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah. So this is this is kind of cool, um, but it's got it's got uh politics, alternate history, magic, um, and sort of a, what a, I don't know, matriarchal vibe. Mm-hmm. Based on quasi-history. The Ring and the Crown. Cool. Who's reading the next one? You want the Confabulist. To? I'll go for it. Okay. There we go. Go for <laughs> it. By Stephen Galloway. Read by Jason Culp. Mm-hmm. Uh, published by Penguin Audio, 9 hours, 30 minutes. What is real and what is an illusion? Can you trust your memory to provide an accurate record of what has happened in your life? The Confabulist is a clever, entertaining, and suspenseful narrative that weaves together the rise and fall of world-famous Harry Houdini with the surprising story of Martin Strauss, an unknown man whose fate seems forever tied to the magicians in a way that will ultimately startle and amaze. It is at once a vivid portrait of an alluring late 19th, early 20th century world, a front row seat to a world-class magic show, and an unexpected love story. In the end, the book is a kind of magic trick in itself. There's much more to Martin than meets the eye. Historically rich and ingeniously told, this is a novel about magic and memory, truth and illusion, and the ways that love, hope, grief, and imagination can, for better or for worse, alter what we perceive and believe. That's pretty good writing copy there. Yeah. Um, uh, about three lines in, Jenny claimed this book is hers. <laughs> <laughs> I, meant to, it, I meant to before and never did. So. What was it that made you say, I got to read this book? Jenny? Oh, I don't know. I was thinking about it anyway, and then no one else wanted it, so I didn't want it to slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of um, 
The Prestige, which I enjoyed much more than I expected. So yeah. I thought another book from that era about magicians might be up my alley. I can't remember. Were you on our podcast discussing The Prestige? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was. That's, that was a great book. Um, that The other thing that shows up besides Rule of Three is doubling. Um, in in good good fiction, when you're reading really good fiction, uh, like Frankenstein or something like that. Or Prisoner of Zenda. Yeah, or Prisoner of Zenda, right? Anytime you've got this doubling of characters or doubling of of scenes or something like that, it it just adds a a layer that you know you can feel that's awesome. Yeah. Um, Johnny, De- Johnny Depp is doing a Houdini movie, I think. Oh. Oh, that'd be good. Did you know that uh, Lovecraft wrote uh, ghost, ghost wrote for Houdini? He wrote uh, a Houdini story in which Houdini is a Lovecraftian character. Wow. Um, yeah, he goes down into a tomb in Egypt and uh, finds uh, some horrible things in the bottom. And it's like Houdini is the main character, and he's, so it's it's written as if it's not fiction. It's written. Yeah. Wow. If it's a true story, and he did go to Egypt, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so the, there was a bunch of s- stories by Houdini in weird, weird tales, but none of them were actually written by him, and at least one of them was written by Lovecraft. And, and then, we can sort of tell which one is the one written by Lovecraft. Did the pyramids start filling with sand, and he had to like um, escape? There's a rope uh, that they lower, like a bunch of people say, "Oh, it's Houdini. Let's." Let's just lure him down into this tomb. <laughs> and he gets lowered do. like Yeah, exactly. Um and he gets lowered incredibly deeply into the into the earth. Uh like far farther than it should be. I haven't read it yet, but I, I've been reading about it, so I'm, I'm, uh, maybe I'll scan that one next and and read it. And at the end he goes insane. <laughs> no, because it, he has to live because he's still Houdini. <laughs> Which is one of the uh, things that makes it a little unlovecraftian, right? All right. No one's perfect. So, so last in that category, we have Dead Man's Hand, an anthology of the Weird West. Right. Edited, of course, by John Joseph Adams and narrated by Natalie Ross and Phil Giganti. Did I say it right that time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's from Brilliance Audio. It's about 16 hours worth of stories. And so I thought I would just read down the line of what the stories are, but mm-hmm. without any descriptions of them, because there are plenty of them. Um, the Red-Headed Dead by Joe R. Lansdale. The Old Slow Man and His Gold Gun from Space by Ben H. Winters. Hellfire on the High Frontier, David Farland. The Hellbound Stagecoach by Mike Resnick. Stinger's and Strangers by Seanan McGuire, Bookkeeper, Narrator, Gunslinger by Charles Yu, Holy Jingle by Alan Dean Foster, The Man with No Heart by Beth Revis, Wrecking Party by Alistair Reynolds, Hell from the East by Hugh Howey, Second Hand by Rajan Khanna, Alvin and the Apple Tree by Orson Scott Card, Madam Damnable's Sewing Circle by Elizabeth Fair, <laughs> Strong Medicine by Tad Williams, Red Dreams by Jonathan Mayberry, Bamboozled by Kelly Armstrong, Sundown by Tobias S. Buckel, La Madre del Oro by Jeffrey Ford, What I Assume You Shall Assume by Ken Liu, 
The mm. Devil's Jack by Laura Ann Gilman, The Golden Age by Walter John Williams, Never Sleeps by Fred Van Lente, and Dead Man's Hand by Christy Yant. I can get insight into Never Sleeps. That's that's the it's almost the name of the Pinkertons. You guys know about the Pinkertons? Oh, yeah, the sort of spy. Um, Private cops, yeah. is what they were. Um, the Pinkertons were, like, it's kind of mercenaries, but yeah. more like um, more like uh, private detective sort of mercenaries. And, and they were always hunting down, the, you know, those wanted posters and getting the guys who were... Yeah. It, they were like rampaging all over North America, basically, <laughs> getting into trouble. And um, it's kind of like Blackwater, actually, of the 19th century. Hmm. And their their motto was "We never sleep," which is kind of scary. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, Who is Blackwater? Blackwater. They changed their name not that long long ago. Blackwater was the the contractors in Iraq. Oh, who, okay. Uh, could you know they 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 had the same. Uh, freedom from law as the yeah. military. You know, there, there's no prosecution of them if they do crimes and such. And so, yeah. It, and they and they of course took tons of government money, which is the same with the Pinkertons, right? Mm-hmm. Is it's a it's kind of almost a way to fleece the government, yeah. um, because the government has unlimited funds. Uh, Pinkerton sort of disappeared uh, around the same same time the. I think they're still around, but they sort of disappear as the force that they were around the same time the the FBI is. is yeah. Um, Second Hand by Rajan Khanna. I didn't listen to it, but it was the full story was narrated on Lightspeed magazine on their podcast, so hmm. you can listen to that. Um, this whole anthology reminds me of uh, Felix Gilman's books, who coincidentally shares a name with Laura Ann Gilman. I don't know if they're related. Probably not. Um, anyway, Felix Gilman um, wrote a book called The Half-Made World, and it's a really cool book. There's a sequel, too, um, which I haven't read, but um, it's the, the premise is that the, the Western world is literally sort of being made, so it's, there's just kind of roiling kind of primordial ooze once you get past a certain point in the frontier, um, and there's these two powers... In, in this world, there's the line, which is represented by the railroads, and they're very uh, mechanical, authoritarian. And then there's the gun, which is an organization controlled by um, weapons that are possessed with demonic spirits who kind of, um, I don't know, communicate with their with their wielders, and, and they're, they're sort of revolutionaries against the line. And it's a really interesting premise. It's mm-hmm. funny that you mention him because his the audio version of his newest book just came out. Like last week. Oh wow! So Revolutions, which we talked about before. Yeah, that's right. Got yeah. A print book, but uh, Ralph Lister is the narrator for that. Okay. I heard uh, I heard them talking on uh, Geek's Guide about this anthology, um, and I think they talked about weird westerns afterwards, hmm. which is it's kind of a uh, forgotten genre or subgenre. It's not super popular as a subgenre. Yeah. But it's it's kind of almost steampunky, but it, it tends to have you know a little more substance to it. Um, another story in here that I would probably point to as being a good one to read. I, I haven't read it, but I, I like Mike Resnick a lot. Yeah, um, he's good. Hellbound Stagecoach. He's such a good writer. 
Um, the Held On Stage Coach is obviously a play on uh, Robert Bloch's story that's very famous called That Hellbound Train, um, which wow. you get the train and you get the stagecoach, you get sort of a pair. So, Well, and there's the, um, what's popular right now is like the Joe Abercrombie books, which are like fantasy western kind of. Oh, well, most of them aren't, but Red Country is. Right. I just read a story in the middle of the night that has that main character in it from that, the shot, I think her name is Shy. Shy, yeah. Yeah. Well, that so was a that, great book. Yeah, that angle is kind of out there, too. And honestly, I just haven't found a good way into Westerns yet. I'm willing to try it, but to me, like a whole bunch of people posturing around and riding horses, <laughs> I just don't care. <laughs> Even if there's weird stuff, I don't know. I'd have to really find something I like. Well, Jenny, here's an interesting factoid for you. You know space opera, right? Yeah, that's also not really my thing. Yeah. Well, space <laughs> opera actually is just Western. The original idea behind space opera was we've got all these writers who are just writers. They write for, for money and for for the mass-consuming audience of magazines. And so what they did was they'd start up these new science fiction magazines because they think there's a market there. But all the writers who are writing westerns, and they're so used to writing westerns, they try and write for that new market. But they, (laughs) just using the the, the language and the systems of, you know, like the descriptions of spaceships are basically just horses Mm -hmm. or stagecoaches or trains. No wonder. Those are like my two least favorite things. (laughs) Those things were called horse operas. So a horse opera is a space opera with a horse. Well, then maybe I don't need to feel bad. It's just not my flavor. Yeah, it's just... It's it's kind of like romances for men, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess you can I, say the original Star Trek TV show was Bonanza, but the same. No, it's supposed to be Wagon Trains. Right, Wagon Train to the Stars is what how he sold but, it, but actually that's not what it's like, right? Well, it, it almost looked like they took the crew from Bonanza and put them on Star Trek. It has kind of like the same music and the same staging and stuff. Uh, but Lauren Green was on Battlestar Galactica, so your theory falls apart. Okay. <laughs> the only thing slightly Western I've ever liked is uh, Little House on the Prairie. Oh, yeah. Oh, Firefly's a Western, too. Shh, Western no. and space opera. No, Oh, no, don't say that. <laughs> it's just well-written. Right? <laughs> Actually, Mike Resnick writes a lot of weird Westerns, and they're, they're pretty short. He's a good writer. I, I think you just, you know, you can enjoy his Starship series, well, I read Starship Mutiny, and I really, I'm, I'm not a space opera fan either, but I really enjoyed that. And yeah, I mean, it's not deep at all, but yeah. it's so well written. Yeah, and it, the characters it is. are fun. It, it's more like Star Trek with a rebel at the head instead yeah. of, uh, uh, you know, whatever. I, Kirk was a, a rebel only in that he, he was always forgiven at the end of every episode. Yeah. Right? He's breaking the prime, prime directive. Because he's the white hat. Yeah. Not yeah, the black he's hat. Yeah, it's just <laughs> representing the good. good yeah, but they're really no. It's it's not really a Western Star Star Trek at all. You know, this is oh. probably why like everyone else liked the March the Martian, and I just was like, eh. the same problem, I guess. I think that's a Western. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's totally a Western. <laughs> a lot of sand and dust everywhere. And much closer, much closer would be uh, the Barsoom books, right? Those are much 
much closer to westerns in that there's an actual you know horse riding guy uh, in the desert running away from Indians when he when he goes to Mars, but uh, and then you know the the red people and the green people of Mars are sort of you know cowboys and Indians. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I w- I wouldn't. It's romantic. It's it's romance. Well, I think it's also like you read something you identify with, and where are women in westerns? Uh, they're in the brothel. Yeah. <laughs> Generally. Or, or they're the, yeah. Madame Damnable's Cat- uh, sewing circle. Doesn't Cat Valente have some kind of a western, like Cinderella six-gun shooter or something like that? I haven't read that one yet, but I think, uh, you're, I think uh. you're right. I think she's been playing with genres lately. Why, why are we not talking about the science book? Hey, well, I want to talk about my new it. favorite blog. All right, let's talk about your new favorite blog. I came across this blog called The Audio Buccaneers. And whoever these people are do a really good job at just running down a list of all the audiobooks that are coming out every week. Um, And, I mean, of all genres. But they include science fiction and fantasy. um, But they include everything else, too. And I've come across some books there that I hadn't seen anywhere else. And then I go look in my usual places, and there they are. But for whatever reason, you know, they didn't come up on the genre list or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're doing wow. sort of what SF Signal does for paper books. Right. It's like comprehensive. <laughs> yeah. It, it it it's a complete listing of all the. I mean, it became too unwieldy a while ago. I used to do that, and it just became too unwieldy for one dude like me. Yeah. To to do alone. Well, and and not only are they putting what comes out every week, they're also putting what's coming up, which if you're doing it every week, I'm not really sure why you'd bother because then you just have to repeat yourself. But it's still like, if you're just looking for ideas, it's a really great resource. Mm-hmm. And Neat. they're clearly really well read. Like when they even just talking about the revolutions by Felix Gilman, they talk about the other books he's written and a novella or a novelette that they really loved. And, you know, so they they feature some of them quite extensively. What they need is a podcast, <laughs> and then we wouldn't need to competition exist. for us. <laughs> that, when they have a podcast, then I'll start listening to that and and be uh, jealous and angry at them. <laughs> oh, it's a great blog though, and it looks like it goes back to September 2010. So oh, wow, it's, I was surprised yeah, I didn't I, come across I, it before. <laughs> My problem is 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 because I'm so I'm so looking at the past. Um, I'm that's why we need you, Jenny, because um, you, you're looking to the present and, and the I'm future looking. of bleakness and paranoia, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Someone has bleak, to. <laughs> bleak punk. <laughs> Ooh. We need to find a space opera for Jenny. Maybe Peter F. Hamilton. No, I've read so many. Oh, I read. I read Leviathan Wakes. I've read, uh, well, I did like the Karen Lord book, Best of Both Possible Worlds, Best of All Possible Worlds, whatever that one was. But tech, I guess that was kind of a romance, too. Mm-hmm. Planetary romance. I tend to like that kind of thing in short story form for some reason. I guess I just, like, I was reading Charles Strauss's Saturn's Children the other day. Yeah, you, what was up with that? Because well, I love the book. 100 pages in, I'm like, okay, so rinse and repeat. Here's another, you know, physical space that wants to have sex with her. Okay. Oh. And then little creatures that are going to come 
try to kill her. Okay, well, that all of those things had already happened. And then they happened again, just in a slightly different twist. And I'm like, I have 200 more pages to go. I bet it's just going to ha- keep happening. I don't know. I just It's like I got it. I was interested in the idea behind it, but I didn't want to read the repeated adventure. Yeah. I know I sound there crabby. Is <laughs> no, 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 you're right. Um, it's just not my thing. See, some people really enjoy that. What I liked about it was that it was it was basically it was funning with Heinlein because Heinlein uh, he wrote a novel called Friday. Here's my review of this book, by the way. He wrote a novel called Friday, and uh, it's about a artificial woman uh, who, for all intents and purposes, isn't artificial, but she she has like a uh, I don't know an inferiority complex because of it. Hmm. And it's got some rapey sort of scenes in it, um, which yeah, you know, she get raped in the beginning. She just kind of shrugs yeah, off. she does. And it, it's it, the thing is, is Heinlein is he gives a gives you a weird vibe, you know. Um, but he's so powerful at writing that you keep reading his books, even though he gives you sort of a creepy vibe. Um, and so this is playing with that, and also playing with Asimov's Three Laws and. Um, so I, mm. I I just thought it was really cool to have a book where all the humans are dead. Right. Right? Because that is a reality that will eventually happen. Well, and I was really interested in that part, that setup. That that was what interested me. But the story itself isn't really about that. It's about the adventure. I agree. So, I agree. Yeah, I'd rather read something like Ramez Nam or Hanu Ranajemi or... Um, Nancy Cress, because they take the similar ideas, but then the story isn't about the battle. It's about the humanity or yeah. the lack of humanity or what what happens when humanity evolves. I'm really interested in that as a concept, but I just don't care about the weapons that you're using. Or <laughs> you know, some people are really good at different different forms. So I like Charles Strauss more for his short stories than I do for his novels. Right. Because his novels tend to be... There, there are like there are novels, a lot of novels. I think that are just not. They shouldn't be novels. They're just written to a certain length because that's how they can sell them. Right. It's not like the idea is, is being fully played out in that space. It's that they, like you were saying, wash, rinse, and repeat. Right. Mm-hmm. Do the same things. Juggle the the same materials slightly differently, and then you could sort of cut out all of that middle stuff and join the beginning and the end together and have a, a good idea with a good story. Um, and I think Strauss might be one of those guys, but they cannot make a living writing short fiction. Yeah, right? it's a shame. And it is a shame. Um, but yeah, that I think that's that was the problem. So I, I forgive, I forgive uh, a little bit, but yeah, it's... I, I see your problem. At the same time, I read Glass House by Strauss, and I liked that one. I'm not sure what the difference is. It's another novel? Mm-hmm. I have not read I never finished that one. I got like three-quarters of the way through it. Hmm. I've tried a couple of I, those, I, because I, I like the premise be, of them, but... Just there should be more books them. set in in the post-human... Not like post-human is in human... No, after humans have died. Because it's 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 kind of existential. I, I I did a lot of thinking during 
reading that book. And so maybe a lot of the wash, rinse, repeat stuff was sort of in the background while I'm thinking about the implications of, of, uh, of, of it. Right. Well, I think books that are set entirely after humanity is gone don't have as much conflict as those where it's happening. And all of a sudden, yeah, humans aren't the superior beings anymore um, and what they do to try to keep that power. Um, I think that's kind of the crux of the, of most of the books that are about that right now. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating. Maybe you would like Elizabeth Bear is hammered. It's more like about women characters. And... I did buy it. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. It's sitting right next to me actually. <laughs> it's calling to you. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.